Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show, episode 120. I hope you're all doing very well, the way I am. And uh, today, as you know, we discuss science and technology. So before we get into it, let's take a look at who all is there with us. And let me greet you all. I can see Abhishek, uh, Swapnil, Samarth, Kuldeep, Priyanshi, Parikshit, Pratham, Anonymous, uh, Vaibhav, Shashank, Om Parekh, Jai Vaidya, Sagar, Crazy Brain, Aryan Singh, Vladimir, Adityanath, Nilesh Patel, GK, Shahin, Juna, Keshav, Shivam, Prabal, Prashant, Aditi, Purobi, Siddhant, Hari Priya, Milandatta, Uchiha, Itachi, Ishan Sharma, Harsh Dubey, KB, Kota Pradeep, Kuldeep, uh, and uh, lots of other people, Ashima, Abir, Parikshit, Trupti, Kavit, Om Parekh, uh, Nilesh Patel, Swapnil, everybody else. Uh, nice to have you all with us tonight. And uh, before we begin, I get this question lots of times as to how do we, uh, how do, how can you all ask questions? So that's the question I get all the time. Uh, so just let me explain how you can ask me questions. Uh, what you need to do is in the comments below, uh, you need to ask your question and use the hashtag. Uh, this is the hashtag, ask Abhijit. You need to use this hashtag because uh, that's the way I'm going to find your questions. I'm going to search for the hashtag and that's how I'll find it. If you don't use the hashtag, I may not be able to see your question. If you use the wrong spelling, I may not be able to see it. So use the hashtag, ask your question, keep it short, one or two sentences. Some people write entire paragraphs. I can't take those questions. It will take me a lot of time to just read the question. I want to optimize the time that we have here at our disposal. So keep your questions short and precise. One, one sentence, two sentences, maybe three at most. Make it fast. And so that's how you ask questions. All right. Okay, uh, let us get into the questions. As always, we have a bunch of questions and let's get into it. So the first question is by Mr. Swapnil, Swapnil Mishra. There are claims that there is a new ocean forming in Africa because of an earthquake in the Afar region in 2006, which apparently expanded the East African Rift Valley. Should we be calling it a strait or a sea before calling it an ocean? Okay, so uh, apparently there are claims that there's a new ocean forming in Africa, inside Africa, because of an earthquake in the Afar region. Afar region, the Afar region in Africa is the Ethiopian region, yeah, north, uh, east. Let's take a look at the map. That's the best way to understand what's happening. Do we have a map somewhere? We should have a map. All right, all right, maps. Okay, let's take a look at the world. So this is the map. And uh, let's go to the Afar region, north uh, the Horn of Africa. So this is the region we're talking about. All right. Ethiopia. So let's take a look at the satellite image. Do we see an ocean somewhere here? Do we see an ocean? Do we see uh, a strait or whatever? We do have the Indian Ocean region here, Somalia and Kenya, Tanzania, etc. We have the Horn of Africa. We have the Gulf of Aden. We have the Red Sea. We have the Strait of Bab al-Mandib. Where is the ocean? That uh, is apparently there. Where is the new ocean that's forming? Where's the where's the where's the strait? As you can see, there's nothing, right? So, as we can see from the evidence that we have at hand, observational evidence, 
there is no such thing that's happening. There, there have been earthquakes in this region, yes, but uh, no such thing is happening. There is no new ocean forming. Now, uh, what's the deal with the Rift Valley, the East African Rift? Let's take a uh, look at that. What does that mean? So the Rift Valley, let me put that on the screen. Uh, so what is this Rift Valley? It's, it's uh, something that's apparently quite uh, consequential to human history. So let's take a look at this, the Great Rift Valley. This doesn't give us a lot of information. So let's look here. I need a bigger image. Uh, so in this region, we have the Great Rift Valley, the East African Rift Valley, which apparently played a significant role in human evolution. Yeah, so as you can see, this region is the Rift Valley. And uh, what does it actually look like? This is what it looks like. So, and how does a rift valley form? How did this, this rift valley form? It formed as a result of tectonic activity. Can you see this? So you have tectonic activity, which, which uh, happens because of the, in, the magma under the Earth's surface. You have tectonic plates that keep moving all the time. It happens over geological timescales, millions of years, tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. And because of that, you have these continental plates that keep, keep moving. Some go under the other, and that's what happens, right? So this is a process that takes millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years. And we can see this happening in slow motion. So even if there's an earthquake, even if there is some such uh, geological uh, uh, phenomenon that happens, it, it won't happen over a week's time or a month's time or a year's time or a decade's time, even a century's time. It's going to happen over hundreds, tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. So the answer to this question is, yes, there are earthquakes in this region. It's, an, it's a seismically active, reasonably seismically active region. You have these tectonic plates that are pulling away from each other, which is causing the formation of a valley. But that's going to happen over millions of years. So if our descendants are around, let's say 10 million years from now, they may see a whole different geological landscape in this region, in East Africa. Maybe at that time, there could be the beginning of the formation of some kind of uh, ocean or strait or something uh, like, uh, like the way the Mediterranean Sea formed a long, long, long time ago, that sort of thing, right? So from the observational evidence, it is extremely clear, completely clear that there is no such thing. There is no new ocean that's forming there. If somebody makes the claim, you can verify it for yourself. If someone claims that so-and-so thing is happening, why don't you take a look at the map and see, is it happening? Verify for yourself. As you can see, it's not there. It would happen perhaps, but not anytime soon, right? Not in our lifetimes, not in a million years. Maybe on timescales longer than that. Maybe an order of magnitude greater than that. So that's where we are as far as this is concerned. Right, next question. Swarup Vaidya says, how does photographic memory work? Is it something people are born with or uh, can someone develop it later? So what is a photographic memory? It's apparently something in, uh, it's, it's something that a few people have a very, it's a rare uh, phenomenon. Some people can memorize things uh, in extraordinarily great detail as if they have a photograph in front of them. Uh, so I think this is something that could, that is extremely uncommon if it even does exist. I don't have a photographic memory. I am a very forgetful person. Uh, <laughs> I, I tend to forget faces. I tend to forget names. Uh, no disrespect. I've met lots of people and I next day I will not remember them. If you remember, I we used to have this video chat session. Uh, we, uh, I did a, a few video chat sessions, Ask Abhijit, right? And I would have people coming in and I had this rule that if you have come 
once in a video chat, then for the next month, you cannot come. And people kept on coming and I could not remember the faces because once I'm done, I forget that. So, uh, so yeah, I don't, I clearly don't have a photographic memory or, or anything like that. I rem remember certain things very well, things that I find very interesting. Other things I don't really pay attention. So how does photographic memory work? Uh, first of all, some people are good at memorization. Naturally, they have a natural inclination or, or, or aptitude for memorizing certain things. You can't memorize everything. Some people are good at remember, remembering faces. Some people are good at remembering words or text. Some people are good at remembering equations or whatever. And people who have this natural ability or, or a naturally good memory, they can be trained further. There are certain uh, organizations that may or may not exist. They're called intelligence agencies. Uh, we know of you, CIA, FBI, Mossad, RAW, and so on. So they these uh, organizations employ what's known as uh, spies in the espionage business trade craft. And they obviously will recruit people who are good at this, who are good at memorizing things. And then there are certain techniques that are taught to these uh, fledgling spies as to, and which helps them memorize vast amounts of information and, you know, memorize it as long as it is required and then they can get rid of it from their memory. So some of these people may have photographic memories. Uh, people, uh, photographic memories are alleged to be uh, prevalent among top class, like 1% of the 1% kind of uh, poker players, gamblers, etc. They are, uh, some of them are able to memorize things and, and you know, that, that helps them win whatever game they are playing, poker or whatever. That, that's what I've heard. So it's something that is alleged to exist. Some people may have it, I'm sure, I'm sure. But, uh, and, and some people may be born with exceptional memories and you can certainly develop it further. So if you have a good memory, there are memorization techniques that you can learn that would improve your memory. So the more you improve, the more you practice it, the better your memory will become. So it's an acquired skill and it's also something you're born with. And that's just how it works in most things in life. Okay, Sana Toibi says, how do birds fly? How do they take off so effortlessly, hold themselves in the air and have a safe land landing? Is it magic? How come they don't need fuel? Firing fuel creates a force to launch a plane, like how birds' legs propel itself for a takeoff. Does it mean any flying machines need a fuel? Is it possible to engineer an aircraft or plane without any kind of fuel? Okay. How do birds fly? It's a good question. So we know we all see aircraft, yes. Aircraft taking off and landing and flying and all that. So there are two components when it comes to aircraft. There are multiple components, but let's keep it very simple. Let's simplify it, oversimplify it for the sake of understanding. An aircraft has wings that create lift, that generate lift. Let me explain in a moment what lift means. So they have wings that generate lift and they have a propulsion system. They have jet engines or propellers or whatever. Propellers pull the aircraft forward and jet engines push the aircraft forward. That's how it works. So they have propulsion, they have wings to generate lift and they have stabilizers like the tail stabilizer, etc., in aircraft to keep it stable. Uh, so that's how aircraft work. So you need lift generation and you need propulsion and you need something to stabilize your flight. In the case, of aircraft, you have that. In the case of birds, the wings that they have come in different sizes and shapes. Uh, let's take a look at what birds look like. Just a second. Let me put birds. 
on the screen. Um, where, where are we? Here we are. So this is uh, different examples of birds. Some are big, some are small. They come in different sizes and shapes. Some have large wings, some have small wings, and so on. So that's what birds look like, the descendants of the avian dinosaurs. In the case of eagles, they've got large wings. Vultures have got large wings with, with uh, great wingspan. Sparrows, hummingbirds have short wings, and so on. Right. So in the case of birds, they use their wings for two purposes, not just one purpose. They use their wings for propulsion as well as for lift generation and for, and for stability. So birds have tails. Tails kind of act like stabilizers. They stabilize the flight. And the flapping of the wings is what uh, gives them propulsion. And once they are airborne, they use the wings for lift generation also. So what is lift? Lift is this phenomenon in which the air pressure below the wing surface is higher than the air pressure above the wing surface, which results in an upward force that pulls that pushes the bird up upwards or the aircraft upwards. That is a simplified version, a simplified explanation of what lift is. So in aircraft, you have wings that the, the design of the wings is such that when you push the aircraft forward using propulsion, there's going to be this lift that is generated. The air pressure on top above the wing will be lower than the air pressure below the wing, which pushes the aircraft upwards. And that's what makes it fly. So in the case of birds, it is the flapping of the wings that provides the propulsion, upward propulsion as well as backward pro uh, forward propulsion. And it generates lift and it makes the birds fly. In the case of large birds with great wingspans, uh, vultures, eagles, condors, albatrosses, etc. They've got very wide and large wings. And once they are airborne, they use certain techniques to stay uh, up there afloat while conserving energy. So there is this phenomenon called thermals, air thermals, which are, which are currents of air. Uh, see, when the sun's energy uh, falls on the earth, it's incident on the earth, the surface of the earth is unevenly heated. In certain parts of the uh, of the Earth's surface, you have forests which remain cooler. Sometimes you have mountains and hills which which uh, produce shadows that keeps certain parts of the of the ground cooler than the others. So you have uneven distribution of heat on the Earth's surface, and because of that, you have the production of these thermals, which are circulating currents of warm air that go upwards, that push upwards. So in the case of eagles and vultures, they use these thermals to just they just extend their winds out their wings out and they somehow sense these thermals and they stay afloat on the thermals so they conserve energy they don't have to flap the wings and it's, it's the upward movement of this uh, of this warm uh, air that keeps the birds flying for uh, for very long hours of um, um, uh, periods of time hours vultures can just uh, fly around uh, for hours while conserving a lot of energy. So that is typically how it happens. The, the bird's legs provide the initial impetus, the first jump, and then it's the flapping of the winds that produces the the uh, the thrust and the lift both at the same time. Now the other part of the question is, does any uh, does it mean that any, uh, any flying machine must need a fuel? In the case of birds, well, you don't put petrol or diesel or jet fuel into birds, but birds do burn fuel in order to fly. 
they have to expend energy to produce the flapping of the wings and all that. Where does it come from? From the food they eat. And there is the metabolism, the, the, the ATP cycle, adenosine triphosphate cycle that produces the energy that powers the muscles. That's the whole thing. That's the biology behind it. So, yes, birds do uh, use energy. They use fuel. Uh, without fuel, if you if you starve a bird, it won't fly. It won't be able to fly. It will lose energy. It will, it will die. Yeah. So so in the case of uh, biological systems like birds, humans, etc., we we have this entire uh, ATP cycle that produces energy in our bodies. Um, so uh, any flying machine needs some kind of fuel. Is it possible to engineer an aircraft without any kind of fuel? You have gliders. So in the case of gliders. Uh, What's a what does a glider look like? Let me show you what a glider looks like. Yes, uh, let's take a look at gliders. One second, let me share that once again. These are gliders. These are various kinds of gliders. These aircraft glide. They don't have any 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 motor. They don't take any fuel. So this is a human. This is a person who is gliding on this this wing kind of design. This is the these are different kinds of gliders, right? So that's what it looks like. So how do these aircraft work? How do they fly? They have to be towed. You have a single wing aircraft or double wing aircraft, double engine aircraft or whatever that is that uh, that pulls this aircraft forward. So you need a cable. You need a cable, and this uh, the glider is attached. It is towed behind an aircraft that has an engine that has fuel. And once it is airborne, when it's once it reaches a certain altitude, the cable is detached. Right, and then the pilot will use thermals, just like vultures and eagles, in order to stay afloat for a long period of time. Eventually, they will have to land, and uh, that's how it works. So that's how gliders work. They gliders do not have fuel, but they cannot stay afloat, uh, uh, stay in the air indefinitely. And uh, you can engineer a plane that uses electrical energy. For instance, you can engineer a plane with very large wings that will have solar panels. It will be uh, powered by solar power. But even in that case, there is a fuel, which is light, sunlight, right? Uh, so you do need fuel for, for, for uh, flight. In one way or the other, you need it. So I hope that explains how all this works. Okay, OJ Chaturvedi says, you can't actually terraform Mars since it has no magnetic fields and the core might just be dead too. So even if you make another atmosphere, it will die out soon enough. Well, technically you are correct. Conceptually, you are right. Uh, the second part is right. The first part isn't right. You can certainly terraform Mars. If you have the engineering and technological know-how, you can do it. It is possible. It's not beyond the realms of science to terraform a planet. It would take a thousand years possibly. Yeah, it's a, a slow process, a long process. You can't do it overnight in, in a couple of weeks time. It takes time. It's a process that could take centuries, but it can be done. You can warm the planet. You can have flowing water again. You could make the atmosphere thicker. You could uh, have mirrors uh, mirrors that uh, that uh, orbit the planet, which... which uh, ensure that there's more sunlight on that is incident on the surface that would warm up the planet or you could do a whole bunch of other things that could warm the planet make water flow again and make the atmosphere thicker there's a lot of stuff you can do right there are lots of different techniques there's a whole bouquet of of techniques a whole toolkit of techniques that you could use to possibly re-engineer the atmosphere of mars and terraform it and make it more earth-like or completely earth-like that could happen 
Now the second part of the so so you can actually do it. It is possible. Yes, there are problems. First of all, Mars doesn't have a strong magnetic field. It's got a very weak magnetic field. So there's always the problem of cosmic rays, of solar radiation, that will, even if you make the atmosphere thicker, it will eventually strip away the atmosphere once again. So Mars had an Earth-like uh, atmosphere. It was an Earth-like planet about four or so billion years before today. And over a period of about two or three hundred million years, the atmosphere was stripped away because the magnetic field uh, disappeared. The core of the planet cooled down. It's a much smaller planet, planet compared to the Earth. So the core of the planet solidified. There was no more uh, circulation of liquid metal inside, which killed off the magnetic field. Once the magnetic field died, the solar wind was able to, to impact the, uh, the atmosphere directly, which ionized it and stripped away the atoms. And over a period of two or three hundred million years, the atmosphere dissipated away. The planet became a dry, barren wasteland, right? So that's why it's like this today. Once upon a time, there was flowing water, oceans, and who knows what else over there. So let's say we do the same thing again. You make it a warm planet again. You thicken the atmosphere over a period of, let's say, a thousand years. So let's say today is 2022, maybe in 3022 AD, we could have a fully terraformed planet with a thick Earth-like atmosphere, flowing water, vegetation, and all that. Let's say we do it. It still doesn't have a magnetic field. Absolutely right. So once again, the same process will get to work. The solar wind, cosmic rays, etc. will bombard the planet, right? There is no magnetic field to shield this thing, the atmosphere. So the solar wind will start stripping away the atmosphere. It will, again, die out. The atmosphere will again be stripped away. But not soon enough, like it says, like it says here. It won't be soon enough. It will take another two, three hundred million years for that to happen. How long has the human species been around? How long has Homo sapiens been around? 250,000 years? 300,000 years? A quarter of a million years? We're talking about 100, 200, 300 million years. So as far as we are concerned, that is way far away in the future. If the planet again becomes barren. For our intents and purposes, it's going to be Earth-like forever, for longer than the human species has existed. That is good enough for us. That is absolutely good enough for us. And that's why people want to terraform Mars. There is talk of it. We still don't have the engineering. Uh, we still don't have the means to do it. The science is very clear. It, it, can, it can be done. But we need to uh, become technologically more advanced in order to be able to do that. First of all, we have to reach there. So that's how it is. Yes, eventually the atmosphere will again be stripped away over a period of 100 plus million years, which is essentially forever for us. And that's why it makes sense to do it if we can. All right. Hope this explains the scenario. Shaheen Wahman Zadegan says, what is a dormant black hole? Recently, a team of astronomers have found the first ever dormant black hole. It's located in the Large Magellanic Cloud, a satellite galaxy of the Milky Way. See, a black hole is a black hole. It may be, it may be active, it may be dormant. That is all okay, but black holes are black holes. Black holes are very... It's actually quite simple what a black hole is. It's, it's a region of space that apparently contains a singularity, a region 
of infinite curvature of space-time and infinite density, and that is shielded from our eyes by an event horizon, right? So we can't actually see it. We can't, we can't ever see a naked singularity. It's always shielded by an event horizon. So that's what a black hole is. It absorbs, I mean, it, it gives off almost no light at, at all. A little bit, yes, Hawking radiation and so on. That's what a black hole is. Now, what's the difference between an active black hole and a dormant black hole? An active black hole is, is a black hole that is actively in the process of, of um, ingesting material. So it's visible. So when material falls into a black hole, yeah, it, it goes, it, uh, it forms what's called an accretion disk, which is a disk, uh, a circular disk in, in which the material slowly falls into the black hole. It's accelerated to greater and greater velocities. It glows, it emits uh, radiation in various uh, wavelengths, radio, wave, radio waves, uh, visible light, um, and much more, right? So it's visible. That's how we actually detect black holes because their effects are visible. You can see that it's in the process of, of absorbing, swallowing, maybe eating a star or eating a cloud of gas and that is heated up. And it's it, it, that's how the black hole's uh, location can be determined because of these telltale uh, uh, signs of its existence. What is a dormant black hole? A black hole that's minding its own business, sitting alone somewhere. It's not actively eating anything. And that's why it's completely in invisible. The truth is black holes are not black. They are transparent. They do have this, uh, dis they do distort space-time. So if you can uh, look for, if you look for micro-lensing events, you know, gravitational lensing in which space, uh, in which objects behind the black hole are distorted by its gravitational uh, effects, then you can detect such a black hole. And recently, it seems astronomers have been able to detect such a black hole. So just a black hole minding its own business, not eating anything, completely invisible, but suddenly they were able to detect the distortion of some objects behind it. And that's why they, that's how they were able to detect, that's how, that's how they were able to determine that a black hole is there. A quiet, quiescent, dormant black hole, not doing anything, not active at all, just sitting there minding its own business. Right? So that is a dormant black hole. A black hole that is dormant is a black hole that is not in the process of swallowing matter, whether it's a star, whether it's a, whether, whether it is a cloud of gas or anything else, dust, whatever. That's a dormant black hole. There could be a dormant black hole in the Milky Way in orbit around the sun. We would never know it. Of course, we could indirectly detect it because of its gravitational effects. Yeah, And that is possibly what could be planet nine or planet X, X, or whatever they want to call it. There seems to be an unknown object in the far reaches of the solar system, and its gravitational pull is affecting the objects um, in that region, beyond the, the uh, trans-Neptunian objects and beyond in a certain way. The plane of the uh, orbit, the planes of the orbits of these objects are tilted in a certain way, which is kind of an ind indicator that some massive object is lurking out there in the dark depths of the outer solar system. Now, it's possible it could be just a large super Earth-like planet, or it could be an ancient primordial black hole that's just sitting there. No one can see it, but it's, you know, shepherding the uh, the uh, solar system objects in that region in a certain manner, right? So that is what we mean by a dormant black hole. A, a black hole that is invisible, it's minding its own business, it's not eating anything actively, completely invisible. There could be so many such black holes out there and we will most likely never detect them because, they, because they're black, they're dark, they're transparent, 
and uh, unless we have extremely sensitive micro lensing detectors we won't be able to detect them so recently it looks like we have done the first detection of one like you say in the large magellanic cloud it's great so so that's what it is Abhishek says, are black holes like solid balls? Solid balls. What's in between the event horizon and the singularity of the black holes? What does it mean that the whole mass is concentrated at the singularity? Is it physically possible or is it just a mathematical outcome? Excellent question. You ask these questions to your physics professor, they'll say, shut up. Look at the equations. But this is how you develop the understanding, the curiosity, the conceptual foundation of what black holes actually are. So as far as general relativity is concerned, a black hole is, a, well, for let's consider the simplest case, the Schwarzschild black hole, a non-rotating black hole with no charge. So in that case, it's just a sphere. The, the event horizon is a spherical region. Yeah. And within the event horizon, at the very center is this monstrous entity, a singularity. It's a monster. It is a region of infinite density and infinite curvature. It's infinity. It's an infinity. How do you define an infinity mathematically? You take a number and you divide it by zero. That's how you create an infinity mathematically. Right? And infinities are unphysical. They make no sense whatsoever. So an infinity is an indication that your equations have broken down and there's a division by zero happening in your equations. Which means that at some region in space, your equations don't work. That's what it means. So the equations of general relativity break down at the quantum level, at the ultra microscopic subatomic level. That's where general relativity no longer works. It works brilliantly on large scales, on macroscopic scales, but it simply doesn't work at the quantum scale. So the, the fact that it gives us a singularity indicates that the equations don't quite work. There is some defect in the equations and we have not been able to uh, incorporate the quantum world, or the quantum domain into general relativity. And that's the search that everyone is making, the search for quantum gravity, a quantum theory of gravity, right? That's what everyone's looking for. So, so we don't quite know what's inside the event horizon. Clear, I, I don't believe that there's a singularity out there. There's something else going on inside a black hole. But there is no way for us to know because the event horizon is opaque. Uh, there is uh, this thermal radiation that, that uh, is emitted depending on the temperature of a black hole. A black hole has certain properties, mass, charge, temperature, entropy, all that, yeah? Angular momentum. The three basic properties of a black hole are mass, charge and angular momentum. A black hole also has a temperature, which means it's it's thermodynamic system. And if you have a temperature, you also have entropy, which is the measure of disorder or the measure number of uh, possible microstates that a black hole can have. It's proportional to the surface area of a black hole. So that's what it is. Inside, we don't know what is there. There could be a bunch of strings. There could be a bunch of photons inside a black hole. You can perfectly well model a black hole as a bunch of photons, as a photon gas. Or, or something else you could there's there's plenty of mathematical toy models of black holes you can create a bunch of fuzzballs a bunch of strings a bunch of photons a bunch of gravitons in a bag you know that sort of thing so we don't quite know is it solid not quite solid the event horizon actually may not mean anything you may go through an event the event horizon and inside you may still find empty space it's quite possible and one of the ways of looking at a black hole is as, as a fluid as a fluid 
there is this whole uh, field called magnetohydrodynamics of black holes. So which is, what is magnetohydrodynamics? It is the study of magnetized fluids. So a black hole can be modeled as a fluid. Yeah, even that, that, that's possible. So there are different approaches that we can use in order to understand what black holes are like or, or maybe to try and probe what black holes could be. As of today, until we find a proper working theory of quantum gravity, a quantized theory of gravity, we will not quite know. No. But yeah, that, so, so that's what a black hole is. There are possible answers that I can give. Nobody has the absolute correct answer because no, first of all, we don't have a black hole in, in a lab sitting somewhere that we can go and observe and test and you know probe and prod. We don't have it. Uh, we see certain objects that appear to be black holes. We have one monster black hole sitting at the, at the center of, of our own galaxy. Yeah, we have other black holes. I mean, most large galaxies seem to have black holes at their center. And uh, so, yeah, we also have the first ever detection of a black hole, uh, which is Cygnus, Cygnus 61 or something, which happened in the 1960s, 70s, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's the thing. We don't have black holes to play with. We don't have black holes in a lab that we could test. And that's why we are unable to actually uh, test it experimentally. So that, in short, is what I can offer you. And research is in progress. And hopefully, someday, we will make a breakthrough. Hopefully, hopefully in this century, the 21st century, I hope, is the century of gravitation when we actually figure out what gravity actually is. So far, we have made zero progress in the past 22 years of the 21st century. How, when, how long has it been? 21 years? Thereabouts, yeah. So, yeah, that's the answer. Okay, Soham says, what are fields, magnetic fields, gravitational fields, etc.? Are they just some quantum particles that flow? Uh, is it some form of energy? And why do they follow certain patterns? How are electric and magnetic fields interrelated with each other? Okay, uh, let's talk about the first part of the question. What are fields? So as you know, I am inside a room. It's a three-dimensional room, yes. It's got a height. Height, it's got a length, it's got a breadth. Three dimensions, X, Y, and Z axis, right? So you could create a coordinate system inside this room, one centimeter notches. It's a three-dimensional coordinate space. And at each point in this coordinate system, there is a certain temperature in this room, right? So you could, for each point in the coordinate system in this room, you could assign a number which represents the temperature at that very point in space. So that is a field. Yeah, a coordinate system, three-dimensional coordinate, coordinate system in which each of the coordinate points has a certain value. In the case of temperature, it's a scalar. It's just a temperature, it's just a number. It's a magnitude which represents the temperature in Celsius or whatever you want or Kelvin. Yep. So that is the temperature field in this room. It's a changing field. It changes with time. Let's say we want to talk about uh, atmospheric pressure. So once again, at each point in this coordinate system, in this room, there is a certain atmospheric pressure, which changes. It may not be the same over here compared to here or up here or down there, right? It changes. So that is the, uh, the field of atmospheric pressure. Now, so these are just numbers. 
only magnitudes now so that's a scalar field a scalar field is a field which has numbers only magnitudes and nothing else these magnitudes may represent physical quantities like temperature pressure whatever right in the same room that i am in at every point in this three dimensional space the atmosphere the air over here has a certain velocity in meters per second let's say over here it is the air is going in that direction at 1 meter per second over here the air is going in this direction at 1.3 meters per second so at every point inside this room the air has a certain velocity not just the speed in meters per second but also a direction so this is a vector field because it has magnitude and direction right and then you have tensor fields which i will not go into they have spinner fields and so on so that is what a field is it's essentially just a coordinate system in which each coordinate has a certain quantity it could be a scalar quantity just a number or a vector quantity or a tensor quantity and so on so you have magnetic fields gravitational fields and, and all that and in in quantum field theory you have well each of the fundamental particles has its own field which permeates all of space time it's an infinite field if the infinite if the universe is infinite so there is a for, there's a proton field i have protons in my body in my shirt in in this instrument over here and these protons are part of a proton field that permeates the entire universe the protons have quarks there is a quark field there are there are different kinds of quarks and each of these quark, uh, different kinds of quarks has its own field now in the case of qft quantum field theory the universe is made of fields and the actual universe that we experience is an illusion everything is just fields and particles like protons or neutrons or electrons or whatever all, all these particles fundamental particles are excitations local excitations in fields so if if, the, if there's a proton here it means that there is a, a spike a spike in the field it's a local excitation of the infinite proton field and so on so that is qft quantum field theory and there's a whole lot behind that so that in brief is what fields are so i am inside this field this room is a field there's a atmospheric pressure field temperature field uh, air velocity field and that is not just in this room it's everywhere on the planet and so on and now the other question is so so that is what fields are right there are different kinds of fields in qft there are at least 17 fields there are 17 fields there's also gravitational field which is not part of the of of, of uh, the standard model and so on now how are the electric and magnetic fields interrelated with each other their relation is very simple look at the maxwell field equations the maxwell equations tell you how the electric and magnetic fields are related to related to each other electricity and magnetism are two sides of the same coin electromagnetism electricity can generate magnetic fields and magnetic fields can generate electricity yeah so if you want to understand how they are related to each other how they are intertwined you have to study the maxwell um, the maxwell field equations google it and uh, so i will not go into detail in that but overall i i i hope you understand conceptually what fields are okay kabir singh says in your previous episodes you have explained about gene editing technology crispr some countries like us china etc may have secret and some secret groups may be using this the purpose could be anything making super humans super soldiers super foods and so on it's suggested to avoid going against nature 
So what do you think could be the consequences of genetic modification in the long run? Yeah, that's, that's a big question. So let's say you are trying to secretly genetically modify human beings and create designer babies or whatever. So what is a designer baby? There, there is this very real possibility in the, in the, in the, sh- the short term future that rich people could be able to have designer babies, which means that you look at the genome of the baby you're going to have and you do some editing. You insert certain genes that uh, maybe uh, are, are uh, that they code for certain kinds of traits, physical traits, some abilities. Maybe the child will be like 20 IQ points more intelligent than a regular child. Or maybe instead of 5 feet 8 inches tall, the child will grow to 6 feet 2 inches tall. Or maybe the child will have uh, fast twitch muscle fibers or more athletic or a certain eye color, certain skin color, certain hair color uh, or certain other traits. So it could very soon become possible to do that. Yeah. So that's what we call designer babies. So that could create a race of superhumans that only the rich people can afford. And that would even widen even further the gap between the rich and the poor. The poor will not have access to such technologies. The rich will have it. And over over multiple generations, the rich will become superhumans and the poor will become the (laughs) whatever is left of humanity. That is uh, a dystopian possibility that could be out there in the future. That could actually happen. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, So that is uh, what CRISPR could do. Obviously, uh, Editing the human genome is frowned upon. It is called. It is considered to be medically. Uh, it's called. It's considered to be unethical. Human experimentation is unethical. But it is certainly possible that certain countries, certain groups, could be doing it. Uh, we know very well what kind of history the CIA has had. Project MK Ultra, in which they did all kinds of terrible things of their own citizens, their own people. Uh, Nazi Germany did certain terrible things. The uh, uh, Imperial Japan during the World War II era did human experimentation. I I hear that the Chinese government has certain has kind of lax standards when it comes to human experimentation, and they could be producing designer babies. I I remember possibly reading somewhere that a couple of twins were born in China with edited genes, CRISPR edited genes, and so on, and they they are definitely doing this on monkeys and other species. So yeah. This could very well, well be the future. It's not a good future, but that's just how it is, right? It's not in our control. If if you have the technology, if you have the know-how, if you have the money, then you could get it done. You could have such things done. Uh, so what are the consequences of doing this? Well, the consequences, we may not quite know what they are. The human genome is immense. Uh, I think it has more than 3 billion base pairs. If I, if I remember correctly, it's very complex. And we understand less than less than five percent of the genome. Yeah, uh, only three to five percent of the genome seems to code for proteins and seems to make sense. The rest of the genome, almost ninety-five percent of the genome, all the, all this genetic information, we don't understand what it is. It seems to do nothing, and yet it can't be the case that it does nothing. Nature is parsimonious. Evolution does. Evolution is such that it doesn't. Uh, you will not have genes that that are not useful. It will, the, the evolutionary process over millions of years get rid of whatever is not gets rid of whatever is not needed, whatever is not useful. Yeah. So if the human genome has evolved such that it contains so many genes, so many base pairs, and all that, 
And I am sure that these base pairs, these genes have some purpose. Maybe it's a purpose we don't quite understand yet, but they will have some purpose. And we don't know what is the effect, what are the consequences of editing a certain part of the genome. Does it have long-term downstream consequences on other parts of the genome? Does, does editing a certain portion of the genome eventually end up affecting other parts of the genome and, and having consequences we don't understand, it's quite possible. It is quite possible. There are all these scientists who say that uh, it's it's great to have GMOs, genetically modified organisms. Well, we don't know the consequences of what, what, what the downstream consequences, 10 generations down the line, 20 generations down the line. And how is it going to affect the environment and the, the ecosystem? Because no species, no organism exists in a vacuum, in isolation. The entire ecosystem of the world, of the, of the planet is interrelated. Yeah, it's dependent on all these different species. And if something changes, it's going to have consequences on, on other species and other, other parts of the ecosystem as well. So I think it's very dangerous to start thinking that we can play God. It could have a massive, massively dangerous downstream consequences. 10, 20, 30, 50 generations down the line, that's when the effects could start becoming visible. And by that time, it could be impossible to reverse that because that's spread to so many uh, individuals, right, by that time. So I think it could be something that's very dangerous. It could end up causing all kinds of defects in the species. So one has to be very careful. And I think there's a good reason why human experimentation is considered to be unethical and it is like essentially prohibited or and banned in most civilized nations. So yeah, that's what it is. Okay, Nahaili says, cardiovascular disease and cardiomyopathies seem to be the number one cause of, the, of death. Well, it's, it's a major cause of, of illness and death for sure. Uh, the question is, how far are we from creating a cheap and flawless mechanical heart that can permanently replace a person's heart or 3D print the entire heart? Do you think that it will happen in this decade or so? Well, that's been the so-called holy grail of, of uh, one of the holy grails of medicine to create an artificial heart that can permanently replace a diseased human heart. So we have all these lifestyle diseases. You have congestive heart failure. You have cardiovascular illnesses, uh, cardiomyopathies and all caused by who knows what. Yeah, we'll not go there. <laughs> so we have these problems, right? Uh, hearts that don't work well, the hearts that are failing. And typically you would need a heart transplant, a full organ transplant. And hearts, organs are extremely scarce. I mean, for somebody to donate their heart, they would have to die, right? So typically that's done in, in, in individuals who are, who are either in a vegetative state, brain dead, completely brain dead, proven, or someone who has met with an accident, but the organs are intact. And if you can harvest them quickly, and if the, if the family allows that to happen, then you may have an organ So for, for transplant. So that is, uh, that's why there is a massive scarcity of available organs and there's a huge waiting list yeah uh, so that's why it's it it makes sense to try and develop alternatives to human organ transplants so one of the uh, alternatives that people are exploring is a xeno transplantation that I've, that's something i've spoken about a few episodes back uh, recently this year itself 2022 in january i believe a genetically modified 
pig heart was transplanted into a human being, into a man. And that person stayed alive, was able to live for a few months. Eventually, the person died because of certain viruses, uh, cytomegalovirus, I believe it's called, porcine cytomegalovirus, which was present in the, uh, in the organ. So the company that provided the pig organ, the pig heart, messed up. And that's why the person died. But until that happened, the person was doing well. So if you can genetically modify a pig organ, and then you could possibly trick the human immune system into believing that it's a human organ, and uh, you could make it work perhaps. Yeah. Or you could try and engineer a completely artificial heart. People have been trying that for decades. Various models of artificial hearts have been created. Usually these are stopgap arrangements until a person can receive an actual transplant uh, organ, a human organ, right? So the human heart is an incredibly complex piece of biomechanical engineering. It has how many chambers? I think four chambers. It has ventricles. It has connections to the vena cava, the aorta. And uh, it's it's quite complex. And it's, it's uh, something that is supposed to stay with you for a century, yeah, if you can live a century. Uh, so it's it's an it's a very complex piece of engineering, and people have tried to replicate that, uh, but thus far it's not been possible. And uh, I remember in the 1980s, 1990s, when I was a kid, people had tried creating these plastic hearts with motors inside that would uh, help the blood flow and all that. So one of the problems is how to power an artificial heart. An artificial heart needs to replicate the functioning, the beating or the pumping uh, functionality of the human heart. So for that to happen, it has to be powered. You need some kind of engine, some kind of motor. You need some power source. You could have a heart with a battery inserted in it, or, or that's part of it, a battery, battery pack. But then a battery can only last so long. You would either need to recharge that battery or need to replace it. Now, when you in when you open up a person's chest, crack the sternum open, open up the chest, remove the heart, put something else in, the, in its place, it's an incredibly traumatic event. Yeah, you the person will be sedated, anesthetized, and the person will will feel no pain or whatever, will not be conscious. But it is incredibly traumatic for the body, you know, opening the opening the up the chest, the thoracic cavity, and cracking the sternum and messing around with the organs. So it's not something you can do every six months. It's not something you can do every two years. Ideally, you should not open up a person's, any part of the body, not more than once in 10 years. So ideally you want a replacement artificial heart to be able to last at least 10 years without having to be you know, serviced or, or replaced. So that is still far away in the future. There are all kinds of issues. Uh, even artificial organs can face rejection from the body. The, the immune system of the body is very powerful. It can degrade the functioning of the organ. And of course, there's the problem of the power source, the battery. Do we have opening in the, in the chest with, with wires coming out and you attach a battery there? That's incredibly inconvenient, isn't it? So major issues remain, major challenges remain, but it's certainly something that... Uh, scientists want to achieve so what's my prediction will this happen in this decade most likely not if it happens great but uh, there could be other more viable alternatives like xenotransplantation if you can if you can artificially create pig organs pig hearts you know 
artificially grow them or grow pigs and then slaughter them butcher them and get the heart out that's another way that that people do so if you could do that and you could genetically modify the organ such that the possibility of or 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 probability of rejection immune rejection is low and if you could solve the problem of the porcine viruses that could infect the human body or 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 degrade the performance of the organ that could be a better option compared to an artificial heart so there are multiple approaches being being uh, ex- explored right now and maybe the xenotransplantation angle may be more promising than a completely artificial heart but even that is something that i am sure people are pursuing so that is the scenario as of today okay riddhi says why is the planck constant h so important even though its value is so incredibly tiny 10 raised to minus 34 that's the order of of, the, of its magnitude why can't this be neglecting for calculating the energy or any other equation uh, so it's like this what is this thing this planck constant what is it so in quantum physics we we this has been experimentally proven right what has been experimentally proven the the planck relation is that the energy of of a let's say a photon the energy is proportional the energy of a photon is proportional to its frequency or its wavelength and what is the relation let me put that on the screen one second do we have it somewhere let me um, let me put the planck relation on the screen so that you can understand what it is all right here we are so this is the planck relation e equals h nu or let me give you a better understanding of that um you can call it nu you can call it f or whatever so this is the planck cons- the, the planck relation do we have a okay here we are i hope this is visible enough so the energy so we have these this equation here what is e e is the energy of a photon it is equal to h which is a constant multiplied by nu which is the frequency of that photon which is equal to hc upon lambda c is the speed of light and lambda is the wavelength frequency and wavelength are uh, that's the relation right so there is a constant of proportionality in here which is called which is denoted by h which is the planck constant and we have determined that its value is of the order of 10 raised to minus 34 whatever units units it is so this is something that just is there you can't neglect it i know it's so small it's incredibly small 10 raised to minus 34 that's the kind of order of magnitude it has but that is how small the quantum world is and to make sense of the quantum world to uh, we need this this is one of the most fundamental and integral parts of quantum mechanics without this quantum mechanics simply doesn't work and it's not that something some scientists have decided that we're going to make it like this no this is what nature tells us this is experimentally proven again and again and again so there is a constant of proportionality which we call the planck constant you can call it whatever you want but its value is of the order of 10 raised to minus 34 whatever units it is you can look it up right so that is why it is so fundamentally important because this is how this, this is the relation between the energy of a photon and its wavelength and its frequency so that is the the fundamental importance of the planck constant in quantum mechanics in 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 quantum physics 
and you simply can't neglect it with without this relation you can't calculate the energy of the photon that's the relationship between the energy and the wavelength this is where quantum mechanics begins right it's max planck who discovered this so to say at the at the end of the 19th century i believe or the very beginning of the 20th century i don't remember the dates if you want, if you're interested you can look at look that up but around around 1900 plus or minus a few years two three years maybe he discovered this and that was the actual birth the beginning of quantum mechanics and that is has is what has transformed the world forever so without quantum mechanics we would have none of the technology that we enjoy today we would not be having this conversation right now yeah uh, so yeah so that's why the planck constant is so important aditya says what is time what is the smallest unit of time how do we even say that the universe had a beginning at t equals 0 if we can never stop dividing time into smaller and smaller units well it's like this we there is a certain minimum unit of time which makes sense and be, below that you the smaller unit, units of time don't make sense why is it so so there is something called the planck units we just spoke about the planck constant yes h and all that so let's take a look at what planck units are and instead of me writing it up i can just uh, put the wikipedia page on the screen so as always wikipedia is not entirely reliable but in the case of science it's more or less reliable so there is something called planck units so these are different units of measurement we have uh, what are they made of they made up of the speed of light in vacuum which is c the gravitational constant g the reduced planck constant h cross h bar which is h planck constant divided by 2 pi and the boltzmann constant kb using these four fundamental universal constants you can create the planck units so these are the planck units the planck length the planck mass the planck time and the planck temperature the planck temperature some people call it absolute hot which is the highest temperature that the universe could ever have so the planck length can be calculated as in as you can see in terms of these fundamental constant constants and its value is of the order of 10 raised to minus 35 meters which is the so this is the smallest length that makes any sense physical sense in the universe the planck length it's of the order of 10 raised to minus 35 meters the planck mass is the minimum amount of mass that makes sense in the universe it's of the order of 10 raised to minus 8 kg apparently it looks like yep and the planck time is the smallest unit of time that makes sense in the universe which is of the order of 10 raised to minus 44 seconds so below that it time doesn't make sense from whatever physics we know whatever we know, we know of physics and whatever we know of the universe so that is the uh, smallest possible unit of time that we can un- understand or conceive of using the physics and the knowledge of physics and the knowledge of the universe that we have at our disposal right so that is the smallest unit of time the planck time or you could call it the planck second if you want it's of the order of 10 raised to minus 44 seconds 10 raised to minus 43 44 seconds the exact amount uh, amount is given over here so that is what it is right so why do we say that the universe had a beginning at t equal to 0 because that's what observational evidence tells us we know that the universe is expanding 
So if the universe is expanding, it's going to be expanding further in the future. You could interpolate it back, interpolate the same process back in time. So if you if you reverse the process of time, you could see that the universe was contracting, 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 which means that it started most likely at a point. Now, if it started as a single point, a supposed singularity, then it would be a singularity of which would have infinite density, infinite temperature. It would be pure energy. The universe would have been pure energy at the time. And the expansion of the universe would have had a certain afterglow. Yeah. And we have detected that afterglow. So observational evidence tells us that this process, which we call the Big Bang, actually happened. All the observational evidence tells us that it actually happened. The uh, radiation that's left over from the Big Bang, the afterglow of the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background radiation, it's been detected. It's out there. It's got a temperature of 2.5, 2.7 or so Kelvin. Look it up what the actual amount is, the actual value is. So all the ex ex observational evidence that we have at our disposal tells us that the universe had a beginning. And at some point in time, most likely it was concentrated into a single point. That's the best theory, the best model of the evolution of the universe that we have, the so-called Big Bang Theory. So that's why we say that the universe had a beginning and when the universe began, time would have been zero because time flowed after that initial expansion of the universe. So that is why we say that the universe at the beginning at time t equal to zero. And like I showed, the smallest unit of time that we can think of, we can construct out of the theories of physics is uh, the Planck time of the order of 10 raised to minus 44 seconds. All right. Okay, next question. Vishal says, uh, what are your thoughts about Vedic Rashmi theory by Acharya Agnivratji? He has explained time, space, singularity, uh, but in theory, not mathematically. What do you think? Is it a possibility of truth or just uh, trash? Vedic Rashmi theory. I get lots of questions about this Vedic Rashmi theory. So I tried to look it up. I tried to look up online. What is this Vedic Rashmi theory? Typically, when you have a theory of physics, of nature, of science, you would have papers. Yeah, a paper in which all the uh, the fundamentals of the theory are laid out properly and uh, all that. So I am able to find nothing. There is a book that's available on Amazon which costs in India 10,000 rupees. 10,000 rupees. Are you kidding me? And there is no literature available online, any 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 published paper, even a non-published paper, a preprint, even that is not available. So I don't know what this theory is. Some people, lots of people claim that it, it explains everything, time, space, universe, all that. My question, see, what is a theory? Any theory must, uh, first of all, explain the universe as it is. It should explain everything that we already know. And then it should make some improvements on what we know. It should make some predictions. So my question about the Vedic Rashmi theory, or whatever it's called, is does it explain the universe as we, as we know it? What are the fundamental presuppositions of this theory? What, what, what is a theory made up of, made up of? What are the fundamental uh, concepts of this theory? What are the foundations of the theory? Does this theory explain, let's say, the four forces of nature? Does it explain the strong nuclear force? Does it, does it explain the weak nuclear force? Does it explain the electromagnetic force? Does it explain the force of gravitation? Does it explain uh, Maxwell's equations for electromagnetics? Does it reproduce those equations? Does it? Does it explain special relativity, general relativity? Does it explain the relative 
the relativistic effects that a GPS satellite must account for, has to adjust for? Can it explain the perihelion precession of Mercury, the planet? Does it do that? Does it explain quantum mechanics? Does it explain the quantum tunneling involved in a transistor, in, in semiconductors? Can it explain fields, quantum field theory? Can it explain population inversion, the principles behind lasers? Does it, can it explain why the moon has phases? Why does the planet Venus have phases? Why, why is the moon tidally locked with the Earth? Can it explain any of these things? Does it have mathematics built into it? What is the theory about? Is there any other specific result that it, it explains? Any testable result that it explains? Does it explain various kinds of observational evidence that we have? Observational empirical evidence? Does it predict anything new? If any of these things are correct, if it does any of these things, why is the information not available in the public domain? So this is how you do science. You don't do science on the basis of faith, on the basis of emotions. Science is hard. Science is very rigorous. So I have seen absolutely no evidence of, first of all, what this Vedic Rashmi theory is. What is the math behind it? I mean, you have to construct a theory using math, not using words and hand-waving. So, so far, I have, I've tried to search for it because people keep asking me this question. I have found absolutely no information about this theory. There is a book available for 10,000 rupees. Are you kidding me? 10,000 rupees? So, that's how it is. So, as far as I know, I, I, I mean, I know nothing about this theory. Uh, I have found no information about this theory in the public domain. And uh, I have seen some PDFs here and there, but it's all words. There, is, there are no equations in there. If there are no equations, it's not math, it's not, it's not science, it's not physics. So that is all I can say about this theory. If somebody can, if somebody has more information, please feel free to put it in the comments and I will look it up. But I am good at finding information and I've found no information. And I'm not going to spend 10,000 rupees to buy a book and I don't know what, what's in there. So that's where we are. Okay, Somnath says, I am fascinated about inter interstellar space. We have two probes in interstellar space, Voyager, the Voyager missions, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Why don't we pursue more such missions? And what lies beyond our solar system? So what lies beyond our solar system? We can see what lies beyond our solar system. Beyond our solar system. We have uh, astronomical evidence of what is beyond the solar system. The nearest star is Proxima Centauri. Um, we have lots of other uh, stars in our regional neighborhood, Tau Ceti, uh, Epsilon, Eridani, and lots of other stars. We have the entire Milky Way galaxy that we are part of. We have our neighboring galaxy. We have a couple of satellite galaxies around the Milky Way, the large and small Magellanic clouds. The closest other major galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy, which is actually coming closer to Earth, uh, coming closer to our galaxy. It's going to merge with our galaxy in two and a half or so billion years, yeah, I think. And then we have the local supercluster, the Laonea Kea or something it's called, supercluster, and so on. And we can see faraway galaxies and faraway things. So we know what's outside the solar system. We know. We have the observational evidence. We have lots of it. We have the Hubble Space Telescope's evidence. We have the new telescope out there, the James Webb Space Telescope that is going to throw new light on things. So we know what is out there. 
we know what lies beyond. Of course, it's always great to send probes into interstellar space so that we understand the environment that's at the um, edge, at the edges of the solar system. The bow shock and the, the radiation environment, temperature out there and other things. It's always good to have that. So the Voyager probes and the Pioneer probes have given us some kind of data. So the Pioneer probes, the, there were two Pioneer uh, spacecraft that were launched in the 1970s. I think in 1972, 1973, Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11. So these had certain purposes to, to actually examine various parts of the solar system and send back photographic evidence from close, close by. So these two probes were launched in the 1970s, early 70s, and uh, radio communications were lost with these probes in the 1990s or in the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, then we had the two Voyager spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, which were launched in 1977. Yeah. And uh, the purpose of these two spacecraft was to give us photographic evidence of the gas giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. And eventually these two spacecraft have entered interstellar space, more or less. Uh, so these are the two, uh, and I believe even the Pioneer spacecraft are in now in interstellar space. Uh, the Voyager spacecraft are still communicating with Earth, but I believe that by 2025 communications will cease because the uh, because the power generating system will fail. It will no longer be able to supply sufficient power for the communications to continue. So yes, we have a few space probes out there. Now, uh, why don't we do more of that? Why don't we pursue more such missions? Because it's, it's first of all, very expensive. Space launches are expensive. And uh, it takes a lot of time for us, for a spacecraft to reach the edges of the solar system and interstellar space. So uh, the Voyager spacecraft were launched in the 1970s, 1977, yes. And I think it took at least 30 or 40 years for them, between 30 and 40 years for them to reach the edges of the solar system. It's a very large time period. It's a very long investment, right? You have to do. So, uh, and right now we have another spacecraft. It's called New Horizons, the one that did the flyby of Pluto and sent sent back the first proper images of the of the dwarf planet. So even New Horizons is eventually going to enter interstellar space. And as of today, there are no other spacecraft that's, that are doing that. So that is what's happening. Uh, in the future, there could be another uh, another uh, project called Breakthrough Starshot. The technology isn't quite there yet. Maybe we could have it in, in the next 10, 20 years. So this Breakthrough Starshot project will send a will send a fleet of more than a thousand micro spacecraft into interstellar space, and within 30 to 40 years, they will reach our closest nearing star, Proxima Centauri. So these will these spacecraft will use light sail technology and pulsed arrays of lasers and all. So that will happen maybe in the next 10, 20 years. So we have such missions that could happen in the future. But our main objective right now is the moon and Mars because of commercial and other reasons, geopolitical reasons as well. So that's what's going on. Eventually, if humanity does well, we could have interstellar missions as well in the future, in the far future. Okay, Naman Soni says, does ISRO hire astrophysicists and astronomers? What is the scope for these fields in the upcoming decades in India? 
I want to pursue these fields. I'm currently a JEE aspirant. Okay. What is ISRO? ISRO stands for Indian Space Research Organization. The name is very misleading. It doesn't do research in space. The primary purpose of ISRO is to develop, design and develop space launch technologies, which is an, which means rockets, right? So the, the, the agency has developed a, a family of rockets, the PSLV, the Polar Space Launch Vehicle, the various GSLV, uh, variants, geostationary space launch vehicle, and in the future we may have more powerful rockets, hopefully uh, reusable rockets and all that. The other uh, agenda that ISRO has is to develop various kinds of satellites. So the primary purpose of ISRO is to design and develop rockets and satellites. So ISRO hires engineers. Uh, it it could conceivably hire people with a background or degrees in astrophysics or astronomy, but they would be doing engineering work. Yeah, if, if they if they get selected. So, so the answer in brief is that ISRO does not really hire astrophysicists and astronomers. ISRO hi hires engineers, aeronautical engineers and or rocket, if you have um, a background in, in rocket design, propulsion, satellite design, remote sensing, all those things. It's all about engineering. It's not about pure science. Astrophysics and astronomy is essentially pure science, right? So uh, so that's the answer. The scope of these fields in the upcoming decades in India. Well, India doesn't have a great academic system. India has a very... I know, I know it, it hurts the feelings of people, but in the Indian academic system is absolute trash. It's garbage. It's one of the worst in the world. Uh, the Indian mind is one of the best in the world. Indians are the most intelligent people in the world, but the Indian academic system is one of the one of the worst systems in the world. There is very little research that happens in India. Very little research. So uh, unless the academic system is overhauled and reformed, there is not a great amount of scope for these fields in the upcoming years in India. I'm still optimistic that in the next five, 10 years, there will be reforms in the academic system. Uh, especially in science, it will all be research-based, research uh, but as of today, it's not the case. Your professors and all, they don't do any research. If they do research, it's just nominal research. It's not any real research. Maybe 1% or 2% of the academicians, professors, etc. would be world-class. The others are just uh, out there for the job. That's all they do. So if you want to be a world-class astrophysicist or astronomer, you will have to leave this country, at least for some time. That's just the sad reality of, of, of the way it is in India. So if you want to do world-class research in these fields, astrophysics, physics, uh, cosmology, astronomy, you may have to, you will have to go to another country, to a developed nation, maybe in North America, maybe in Europe, maybe some other place and do it. And maybe in the future, if India gets its act together, then you may be able to come back and do it in India. But that's that's the situation as of today. There is no other way to, to, to put it across. Yeah. Okay, Jaspreet Bhai says, is there any relationship between our daily life activities and the brain's working mechanism? Is it true that ambidextrous people can use certain extra parts of their brain than the non-ambidextrous ones? 
does it mean does being ambidextrous give you some advantages listen if you are ambidextrous it obviously gives you advantages most people are right handed they do most things with their right hand uh writing playing sport or whatever else right handed some people are left handed but a small percentage of the human population is either cross dominant or ambidextrous so in in certain sports you will see let's say well, let's take the example of cricket you have certain cricketers who do one part of the cricketing activities right handed and some part left handed you know bowling right handed and batting left handed or vice versa that sort of thing that's called cross dominance and you can train yourself to do that but some people are just naturally ambidextrous they can write with both hands they can uh do various sporting activities with both hands and so on so being ambidextrous certainly gives you advantages in life in in many spheres of life especially in physical activities right and uh, typically the brain is cross wired which means if you are a right handed person the right part of, part of your body the right half of your body is controlled by the left brain brain and in the left part of the body the left half of the body is controlled by the right brain so that's typically how it is so if you are right handed it's the left part of the brain that's controlling the right hand typically that's how it is cross wiring so if you train yourself to become proficient with both hands it's possible you can do it or uh, you know often some people who unfortunately lose their right hand or arm they have no option but to learn how to write left handed and they are able to do it so it's certainly possible to train yourself to to become more ambidextrous that would mean that your your right or or yeah your right brain develops more the more you practice something the more you train yourself to do something you will see changes in the physical parts of the brain that are related to doing that particular acti- particular activity for instance there is a very famous uh, neurological effect it's called the sanskrit effect uh various studies were done uh, on sanskrit scholars sanskrit pandits who would memorize massive amounts of sanskrit literature sanskrit mantras texts vedic texts you know all that and they would memorize these verses very precisely even the pronunciation has to be spot on uh, so you know in the past you would have these scholars vedic scholars who would memorize the entire vedas and all that and it's been observed that people who do this sanskrit scholars certain portions of their brains are developed much more than the brains of ordinary people uh, we're not sure if it is something to do with the language the specific language or if you or if you would have the same effect by memorizing something else in some other language but this is called the sanskrit effect you you speak sanskrit you memorize sanskrit your brain develops in a certain in a certain way and it seems thus far so far with the evidence that we have that it it seems to be specific to sanskrit only so we don't know why it is so but what i am trying to say by giving this example is that by training yourself to do certain activities you're going to affect the the way your brain grows and you can grow certain parts of the brain more than an average person so there is certainly some kind of relationship between our daily activities and the brain's mechanism for sure right okay uh, sri kriti says two questions scary dream all right 
Firstly, how are dreams generated? In dreams, how is it possible to see and interact with people I've never met before? Spiritually, I got an answer, but we don't want to know the science behind it. Well, I'm glad you got a spiritual answer because, well, okay. Number two, where is the mind located in our body? Most of the people, most of the time, people use I don't mind, my mind is disturbed, and so on. That sort of language. So, what is the mind? So, where is the mind located in the body? Uh, as far as we know, the mind is located in the brain. We know that people who suffer brain damage, they are mentally impaired. We know that. The mind doesn't work the way it should. Or people who suffer catastrophic brain damage, they if they don't die, they go into a vegetative, st vegetative state in which the mind is absent. It's just, a, it's just a physical body, but there's no consciousness left. So it is pretty clear that the seat of consciousness, the seat of the mind is in the brain, in the head. And that's our perspective, right? Because we see everything from here, up here. We don't have, we don't identify ourselves with our hands or legs or whatever. This is what we identify with ourselves with the most. So as far as we know, the mind is located in the head, in the brain. That seems to be the physical seat of this thing called the mind, right? The other question is, how are dreams generated? Well, we don't know. You see, there's so much science doesn't know. And I, I see people saying that, Abhijit, you say all the time, I don't know, we don't know. Well, that is the truth. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know things. No one knows these things. How are dreams generated? We don't quite know how they are generated. People have done experimentation. Exper experiments with people who are sleeping and their brain patterns are... are, are uh, the brain waves are measured and quantified and traced and stored, recorded. Their brain activity is, is uh, recorded using various instruments, maybe CT scans or various other things. And the brain clearly is active even when you're sleeping. The, the activity is different. The, uh, the waves that are generated are of different kinds. So, so it seems that one of the explanations could be that when you sleep, all the memories that you have created during the daytime, they are reorganized and they're, they are physically stored in various different parts of the brain. And that could be the reason why we need sleep. So all human beings need, I believe, on average around eight hours of sleep. And sleep is very important. People who are sleep deprived, they don't uh, function properly cognitively. Their thinking is muddled. Their, their reactions are bad. So sleep is very important. And it's it's known that if you don't sleep for a certain number of days, maybe eight, nine, ten days, you may even die. You, you will die if you don't sleep that long. So sleep is integral to your good health. And a lack of sleep over an extended period of time is actually fatal. So what happens during sleep? We know that, brain, that dreams happen when we sleep. And sometimes we remember some, some parts of these dreams. Most of these dreams we forget. And why do we forget that? That's also a good question. So we don't quite have the answers, but one of the expl possible explanations is that when we are awake, we experience things, we experience life. All of that information data is stored in the brain in the form of memories. And when we sleep, the memories are reorganized and maybe certain connections which are strong enough are kept and certain connections are kind of slowly discarded. And this entire process happens when you sleep and there is this cerebrospinal fluid that kind of cleanses the brain and uh, prevents 
the formation of amyloid plaques and all that, which could eventually give rise to dementia and Alzheimer's disease and things like that. So uh, that's why sleep is important, but we don't quite have the exact answers as to what is the cause of dreams, why are they generated, why do we meet people whom we have never met in real life, why do we experience certain events in dreams, why do certain dreams occur over and over again. In some, in some cases, some people have the same dream over and over again. Again, what does it mean? Why is it that way? We don't have the answers. Neuroscience is very imperfect. Uh, uh, psychology, psychiatry are very, very imperfect disciplines. I would not even call them science. It's a lot of hand-waving. Some people get upset when I say that, well, deal with it. That's just how it is. Uh, so yeah, we don't have the exact answers, but it's something that is very actively being investigated and researched. Uh, many, many mysteries in this field. What is the what is the mind? What is consciousness? You know, and all that. We don't quite have the answer. Yeah, so that's where we are. Okay, next question. Swapnil says, many people think that hydrogen can be the best form of alternative energy. Okay. So the question is, where did hydrogen come from? How abundant is it? And how did hydrogen and helium give rise to so many new elements? Aren't all the elements after hydrogen and helium essentially just new compounds? Okay. Uh, so where does hydrogen come from? Hydrogen is the simplest element one proton with an electron around it. That's all it is. The nucleus is just a single proton. And there is one electron that orbits orbits the nucleus in shells, right? So that is the simplest uh, element in the world. It is also the most abundant element in the world. How abundant is it? I think hydrogen, if you look at the entire universe, hydrogen most likely constitutes around 75%, three-fourths of all normal or visible matter. So all the normal or visible matter is about 4% of the mass energy composition of the universe. All the stars, all the galaxies, everything we see in the night sky, all the light that is the visible matter, of all of that, about 75% is hydrogen, right? So that is how abundant it is. Uh, helium is the second most abundant element in the world. Helium has an atomic number of two. It has two protons in the nucleus. And I believe helium constitutes about between 20 and 23, 24% of all visible or normal matter, right? All baryonic matter. So hydrogen and helium are the two most abundant elements in the world. Uh, how, what are the other questions? How did hydrogen and helium give rise to so many new elements? Uh, because of nuclear fusion in stars. So look at the sun. The sun is about 70, 73-74% hydrogen and about 24-25% helium and, and the rest is just trace amounts of heavier elements like oxygen, carbon and so on. So the sun is a massive, massive fusion reactor. It is fusing hydrogen into helium. Later on, helium will be fused into heavier elements when uh, the hydrogen, when the sun runs out of hydrogen, uh, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, and so on and so forth, neon, etc. 
and in more massive stars the process goes on and heavier and heavier elements are formed so it is all because of the fusion reaction which is because of the massive uh, gravitational crushing force of this enormous amount of of uh, nuclear fuel so all of these elements are created by nuclear fusion reactions carbon silicon iron iron is what eventually causes the death of a star in a variety of ways mm. so that's how it happens so all the elements that we experience in our daily lives everything that's in here everything in our bodies everything on our planet it all came out of fusion reactor reactions at the cores at the, at the heart of stars we are actually made out of star material the blood in my body contains hemoglobin which contains iron iron is produced at the end stage of of a fusion reaction just before a star goes supernova yeah the fusion reaction that produces iron consumes more energy than it gives off, that it gives off and that's what causes the eventual core collapse supernova in in well that's one one of the ways in which a supernova can occur so all of these elements are the products of fusion reactions in the hearts of stars so the solar system was born out of a nebula a big massive dust uh, gas cloud which was generated from the death of a star so the sun is the reincarnation of an older star and that older star was most likely the reincarnation of an even older star so the sun is most likely a third or fourth generation star and all this material that we have on the planet and in our solar system was created inside ancient stars that no longer exist that died a long time ago so that is the story in brief of how all of these elements were created next question karan says what's a cataclysmic cataclysmic variable star uh yeah that's an interesting question a cataclysmic variable star is a binary system a binary system with two stars so in a cataclysmic variable star you have a regular large star and its partner in the gravitational dance is a white dwarf star so what's a white dwarf a white dwarf is a star that has essentially died the sun is going to eventually become a white dwarf when it loses its outer layers and at the end process at the end stage all that's left in the core of the sun is this massive ball of incredibly hot carbon crystalline carbon so white dwarfs are essentially spherical diamonds massive diamonds that are incredibly hot right so that's what a white dwarf is so in a cataclysmic variable star you have two objects one uh, let me put it on the screen in case we have a, we have a representation of that just give me a second cataclysmic variable star do we have yeah there we go let me put that on the screen so that you get a visual representation of what i'm talking about so it's a binary system as you can see there's a white dwarf and there is a donor star and what happens is that these two stars in this variable are uh, very close to each other and what that does is that 
the white dwarf star starts sucking in material from its companion star. And this material that's falling into the white dwarf forms an accretion disk. And uh, what happens is that this accretion disk uh, causes... So what is in this accretion disk? It's mostly hydrogen, hydrogen fuel. So you have a white dwarf that's sucking in hydrogen. It's a very hot white dwarf. This hydrogen fuel is coming... Is, is is being added to the white dwarf. So it's it's gaining an outer layer of hydrogen. And once there is sufficient hydrogen, and what happens is that the thermonuclear reaction starts again. So the white dwarf, which was quiet, suddenly becomes an active star. And there's a thermonuclear fusion reaction that starts again, which goes on for some time. And that's what causes this phenomenon called a nova. So if you're sitting over here on earth you're observing uh, this this variable star you see a sudden increase in brightness that goes on for some time until that hydrogen fuel is used up and the fusion reaction stops then again the process uh, resumes after some time maybe 10 years maybe 50 years maybe maybe 80 years there is another outburst another flare up in which there is sufficient fuel that is now present on the on the white dwarf and a new cycle starts of this fusion reaction. So it again flares up in brightness and once again you see this star uh, going nova. Eventually what happens is that the Chandrasekhar limit is crossed. What is the Chandrasekhar limit? The Chandrasekhar limit is the maximum mass that a white dwarf can have, which is about 1.44 solar masses. So as you know, you have these two stars. The white dwarf is sucking in material from its companion star. Its mass is increasing. Every few few decades, there is sufficient hydrogen fuel to ignite a fusion reaction, which causes the, the brightness to increase. And slowly over time, the mass of the white dwarf rises, it increases. And once it exceeds the Chandrasekhar limit, it goes boom, supernova. And it destroys its companion star as well. So that is the process. That is what we call a cataclysmic variable star. All right. Very interesting astronomical, astrophysical phenomenon. Okay. Crazy Brain says that I, I came across somewhere that the speed of light from a source to a surface was assumed to be the same as the speed of light reflected back from the surface while its measurement and sees the average velocity of light in both directions. What is the possibility that the speed of light is different in is different in different directions? The possibility that the speed of light is different in different directions is zero. So the speed of light is not always 300,000 kilometers per second. The speed of light in vacuum is roughly 300,000 kilometers per second. And that's, a, that's the same as in air, in air. But in different media, the speed of light is slower. For example, in water, the speed of light is less than 300,000 kilometers per second. I think it's about 2.25 times 10 raised to 8 uh, meters per second. The refractive index in water is higher. In air, it is 1. In, in water, it's 1.33. I think in glass, it's even less, the speed of light. It's around 2 times 10 raised to 8 meters per second. And the refractive index in glass is, I believe, 1.5. In diamond, the speed of light is about 1.25 times 10 raised to 8 
meters per second and the refractive index is much higher in diamond. So it depends on the medium. The speed of light is different in each medium. In vacuum, in air, it's the same, three times 10 raised to eight meters per second. In water, in glass, in diamond, it's lower. The speed of light is lower. But in the same medium, light has the same speed in every single direction. So it is not a directional thing. It depends on the medium. So that is in short the answer. The velocity of light, the speed of light is the same in all directions in the same medium. But if you have a, a surface, bit, um, if you have if you have a boundary between one medium and another, in that case you will see that uh, refraction takes place and light bends, light, light seems to bend and the speed of light is different in different directions. Okay, Vish says, I I kind of know what entropy is and its definition, but our textbooks don't explain that in detail. Can you specify about entropy's properties and its characteristics? Ah, my old friend entropy. <laughs> so what is entropy? See, listen, it's, it's not really possible to explain in detail what entropy is without going into the thermodynamics, the, the statistical mechanics, the equations, S equals K L N omega and so on i'm not going to do that because everybody most people won't get won't, won't understand that what is entropy let me explain conceptually entropy is the measure of the disorder of a system of a thermodynamic system entropy is a statistical measure it's a statistical thing so let's say you have a gas you have a gas let's say you have a gas in a box right it has a number of molecules, a very large number of molecules. So that gas in a box will have a certain amount of disorder, which depends on the temperature. Yeah. And that's uh, how we calculate the entropy. Black holes have entropy. Black holes are thermodynamic systems. So the this thing called entropy is the measure of the disorder of a system and it's a thermodynamic property of a system. It's a statistical property of a system. A single particle, for instance, cannot have an entropy. If somebody tells you that a single particle has an entropy, that person doesn't know what he or she is talking about. All right. So entropy typically is something that you find in thermodynamic systems, ensembles. Even a gas of photons has entropy. You can, there is a certain... Uh, derivation that you can do using quantum mechanics and, and all that to, to determine what is the entropy of a gas of photons and so on. So it's the measure of disorder. Even information has entropy in information theory and all that. So that is the best I can tell you conceptually. I will not go into equations in, in which case I will start a, a whole a whole lecture on thermodynamics. I don't want to go do, do that. Entropy is the measure of the disorder of a system. So a system that has less disorder has lower entropy. The human brain has one of the lowest entropies of any system in the world, in the known universe. It is the most complex system that we know of. And most likely it has the lowest entropy that, that we can think of, of any system that in the known universe. The sun has high entropy, but it is still a well-organized system. So it would have a certain amount of entropy and typically the entropy of a thermodynamic system overall increases or stays the same. It doesn't uh, decrease. 
So that overall is what entropy is. I will not go into further detail than that. For, for that, I would need equations and that would not be intelligible to 99.9% .9 of the audience. Alpha Beta says, why do all living things want to live? From small bacteria to big giant animals like elephants, even dinosaurs, I'm sure, everybody wanted the same thing. It's like life is programmed in that way. Every living thing wants to live and every living thing fears death. So that's what you're saying. So why are all living beings programmed to want to live and to avoid situations that would cause them to perish? Why is that so? That's a good question. Uh, the primary purpose... Okay, let's go down to the micros, microscopic level, unicellular organisms, multicellular organisms. What is their purpose in life? The purpose of these organisms is to reproduce. The purpose of all these organisms is reproduction. That is the only purpose they have. They obviously look for nutrition, they look for good safe environments, but the overall end result they want to achieve is reproduction. They want to reproduce and produce more copies of themselves, more offspring, and what is the purpose of reproduction? It's to pass on the pass on to future generations their genetic code, their genome, their DNA, the information contained in the DNA. So all organisms, whether large or small, are essentially carriers of DNA. From the biological perspective, the overall um, purpose of biological life is to pass on DNA from one generation to another. So DNA is this special molecule that wants to survive somehow. And it has come up with all kinds of tricks to ensure that it is propagated and it survives from one generation to gen another generation into the indefinite far future. And if an organism dies, if it perishes, then it can no longer fulfill this purpose of passing on its, its genetic material to a future generation. So that is why organisms tend to want to avoid dying so that they can fulfill their purpose of re reproducing as much as possible and passing on the genetic information to, to the future generations. And in, in higher life forms like birds, animals, mammals, dinosaurs, etc., uh, there is this conscious fear of death. And it seems to have the same purpose, that you stay alive long enough that, that you can pass on your genetic code to future generations, to your offspring. And that's why larger animals care for their offspring and teach them how to survive so that they can also pass on their DNA, which is part of your DNA, to future generations. So that is why there is this instinctive uh, fear of death fear of dangerous situations, and this instinctive desire to stay alive. Now, all animals exhibit, don't, don't have the same uh, outward uh, signs of this. For instance, most animals are afraid of heights. Most human beings are afraid of heights. Dogs are afraid of heights. But birds are not afraid of heights because they have this evolutionary adap adaptation of flying. Cats are not afraid of heights. Cats will walk nonchalantly on, on the ledge of a, of, a, of a building, even if it is 10, 10 stories high. Why is it so? Because cats can survive falls. 
cats will always land on, the, on their feet. And even if a cat reaches terminal velocity, 60 or so kilometers per hour, it can still survive that fall and, uh, and live. So that's why cats and birds that have developed the evolutionary mechanisms that, uh, that give them these advantages, they are not afraid of heights, but they are also afraid of death in a variety of ways. So the overall fundamental purpose of life is to reproduce and pass on your genetic code to future generations. And one of the ways to do that is to avoid death. And that's why everything wants to live. That's why even human beings have this instinctive uh, fear of death and this great desire to, to live. So that is what I can, uh, that's how I, how, how I would explain this. Alpha says, is Goldilocks zone and liquid water really necessary for life to exist on a planet? Life on Earth is carbon-based. Life on other planets maybe could be based on other elements, could even be unknown elements. They may live in extreme temperatures. What do you think? Um, the Goldilocks zone is this region around a star where uh, water can remain liquid. So when we take the case of our sun, the Goldilocks zone extends from Venus to Mars. So that is roughly the Goldilocks zone. And the Earth, our Earth, our planet is right in the middle of the Goldilocks zone. So on Earth, as we know, we have liquid oceans. We have an abundance of water, of, of flowing water, of liquid water. So that is the Goldilocks zone. It's that small region around a star where you can have liquid water. The temperatures are warm enough for that possibility to be there. So typically, very, typically when scientists look for extraterrestrial life they are interested in seeing if if you if you are observing a distant star if there are any exoplanets in the goldilocks zone of that star and that is supposed to be the place where you should look for life the thing is that that's the place where you could have earth like life it doesn't mean that the only kind of life that's possible is earth like life or carbon based life you could even have silicon based life um there are other places in our solar system, for example, Saturn's moon Titan, which has a very thick atmosphere and very uh, lots of different kinds of hydrocarbons over there. It's a very cold place, but you could have a different form of life there, hydrocarbon-based life. On certain other planets, you could have, instead of water, ammonia-based life. Even that is a possibility. So, um, so I disagree that only water is the basis of life. Uh, you could have different kinds of biochemistries that are completely independent of flowing water. You could have ammonia, liquid ammonia-based life. You could have liquid hydrocarbon-based life, which would, be, which would be very cold life, yeah? Very cold environments and life forms, but it's, it's possible. But the thing we understand the best is human, I mean, Earth-like life. And that's why we look for, that's why we search for exoplanets which are in the Goldilocks, so-called Goldilocks zones of their respective stars. But I agree with you that you could have a whole variety of, of, of uh, possible kinds of life. You could even have life in the atmosphere of Jupiter. Who knows? There could be certain uh, biochemical, uh, biochemistries that could give rise to life forms, sentient life forms of some kind in the atmosphere of Jupiter or Saturn. You could even have, who knows, life 
on stars. <laughs> Very hot life. It's possible. I mean, that's why you should read science fiction because science fiction writers come up with all these interesting possibilities. Right. Okay, Karthik says, please talk about the great attractor. So what is this great attractor? It is this, it is, so the Earth, the solar system exists in the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is part of this great massive supercluster called the Lanoakea or something like that supercluster, which is tens of thousands of galaxies, right? It's our local supercluster. So in our local supercluster, of which the Milky Way is a, is a very small part, there is a certain region in this supercluster which is the center of gravity of the supercluster. And that is what we call the great attractor. Now, what lies there, we don't know. Because when we look there, we have to look through the galactic plane, the plane of the Milky Way. And the plane of the Milky Way is extremely bright. So whatever is on the other side, we cannot really see it. So there is something out there. There is this, this massive gravitational anomaly. Maybe it's an enormous galaxy that's at the heart of the supercluster. Maybe there's something else. We don't know what it is. But there is something out there that is the center of gravity of the entire supercluster of which the Milky Way is a small part. We don't know what there is, what is there. Maybe in about 500 million years, when the Earth goes to the other side of the Milky Way, maybe at that time we may be able to see it. But uh, we won't be there. Our descendants hopefully may be able to see what is the great attractor. So there are various theories. Maybe it is a massive galaxy. Maybe it's a clutch of massive galaxies. Maybe it is a, a region of a great amount of dark matter. We don't know what it is. The various theories exist, but since there is no direct observational evidence, we can only speculate as of today. Okay, let's take one more question. There cannot be any session without UFOs and, and aliens, so let's talk about this. So Aryan says, please throw some light on the 1947 Roswell, Mexico UFO crash conspiracy. So something happened in this place, Roswell, Roswell, New Mexico. It's not Mexico, it's New Mexico in the US, southern US. So there is this town called Roswell where some kind of crash happened. And it was reported in the media that it was a flying saucer or a UFO that had crashed. And apparently there were even survivors. Some alien beings, a couple of them died, maybe one or two survived. And they were retrieved by the US military and taken to some research facility. Apparently, there is even some video of an alien autopsy. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or fake, but yeah, it's alleged that this also happened. So initially, the media reported that it was a flying saucer or a UFO that crashed. Maybe there could be some pictures of that. I'm not sure. You could look it up. But then the official version was put across by the US military, by the US Air Force, that it was a weather balloon that crashed. And the weather balloon, maybe it its purpose was to detect cosmic rays or whatever. So there was a bunch of um, scientific instruments on it. And the weather balloon had a certain reflective surface that looked like something alien. So that's why people mistook it for a, for a UFO or a flying saucer. But it's, a, it's actually just a weather balloon. So that is the official statement that was eventually put across. And that remains the official statement until today. So we don't have evidence of it being a UFO 
or an alien spacecraft or or anything like that. We don't have any of that. Um, the official version is that it was a weather balloon. So that is what it is. So people say, some people say that it's a conspiracy. It's a cover up. It was actually a UFO crash. And then the US government tried to cover it up by, by saying it was just a weather balloon. Who is telling the truth? Who is lying? We don't know. As long as there is no genuine evidence in the public domain, we can only speculate. So that in brief is the story of the so-called Rosewell UFO crash, 1947. What really happened? We don't know. The official version is it's just a, it was just a weather balloon that crashed. But who knows? Maybe it was a UFO. But do we have evidence? We don't. So all we can do is speculate and that gets us nowhere, unfortunately. So the thing is, if UFOs, aliens actually do exist, then we would like to see actual evidence of that video evidence, maybe an interview, a podcast with an alien, maybe Joe Rogan could do it. <laughs> Somebody else, perhaps. So as long as that doesn't happen, it's just speculation. Right? Okay, I think that brings us to the end of the questions for today. And let, let us now take a few live chat questions. You have questions for me? Ask them in the live chat right now. Go ahead and I will take a few of these. Uh, and questions about science and technology only. People will give all kinds of other questions as well. That is something that you can do for tomorrow. In tomorrow's session. Today, please, questions about science and technology only. And I can already see questions that are not related to science. Um, where are we? Let me see if there is any interesting question that I have not taken before. Okay, let's take a look at this. Why does the sun and why do other objects not fall down like balls in space? What is up and what is down in space? In space, there is no up and there is no down. See, why do we have up and down on the earth? Because the gravitational attraction that we feel on the earth is has a certain direction the direction is pointed straight towards the center of the earth. The earth is a sphere, a spherical, roughly spherical object. It has a certain center, a center of gravity, a physical center, and objects fall towards that center. That's why we have this sensation of up and down. Wherever everything falls, that is down, and the opposite of that is up. In space, there is no surface. There is no gravity. There is no force of gravity. And therefore, there is no up and down. Objects are merely suspended in the four-dimensional fabric of space-time. There is no up, there is no down, and that's why nothing falls anywhere. Okay. I nominate Abhijit Chawda for an alien interview. So in, in case you know any aliens, please let them know that I am up for it. I, am, I will be happy to, to, to host an alien. I'll be happy to restart the podcast. I've done 17, 18 uh, episodes of the Abhijit Chowda podcast in which I have conversations with people. Thus, right now it's kind of on a hiatus. I'll be happy to restart it if you, if you can nominate a good, interesting candidate for an interview, for, 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 for a discussion. If you know any aliens, let them know that I would be happy to host them. All right? So, yeah. Okay, next question. Do we have anything else? 
Uh, can the ton 618 hypermassive black hole affect our galaxy or not? Uh, we certainly feel its gravitational effects. Every single gravitating body, massive object in the entire universe, we do feel its gravitational force, provided it is it is um, not more than 13.8 billion light years away from here. Yeah, so we do feel it, but it's it's a very minuscule effect. So it may be a hypermassive black hole. It may be the most massive black hole that we know of, but I think it is. I'm not sure how far away it is from here. Several billion light years away. So it's it's overall gravitational effect will be very small. We do. Feel it. I am sitting here. I can feel the gravitational force, whether I realize it or not, of every single object in the solar system, in the galaxy, and in the observable universe. I do feel it. What I feel is the overall gravity of that. But the individual component of each of these objects, no matter how massive they are, is very small because they are all very, 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 very far away. Okay, next question. Do we have anything else? Mm. Uh, where are we? Where are we? Where are we? Do we have any interesting questions? I'm not sure if we have any interesting. Okay, this is. <laughs> Jay says, What is the role of cockroaches in the ecosystem? What will happen if one day all the cockroaches become extinct from the earth? See, listen. Every single organism, species that exists on the planet has a certain role to play in the ecosystem. The ecosystem is like a living organism itself. It's something that exists in equilibrium, in balance. You remove a species, if the species, if a certain species goes extinct, it's going to unbalance the ecosystem. Typically, the extinction of species in the in, in the and the emergence of new species happens over very long periods of time. So the overall effect is negligible. But if for some reason overnight a species, let's say the cockroaches were to go extinct, that would leave a hole in the ecosystem. It would unbalance the ecosystem and there would, you would see certain effects. So maybe cockroaches are predators of some kind. They may prey upon smaller insects. I don't know what cockroaches eat. Yeah, I'm not an expert in cockroaches, but let's assume they are predators. They prey upon smaller insects and that keeps that the, the population of these smaller insects in balance. If cockroaches were to go extinct, you could see an explosion of small insects because they no longer have this predator, predator that feeds upon them. So that's the kind of thing that happens. So I'm not sure what is the specific exact role of cockroaches in the ecosystem. There are different subspecies of cockroaches, hissing cockroaches, small ones, big ones. I'm not really sure. But all species, all insects, all animals, all beings, living beings have a certain role to play in the ecosystem. The ecosystem exists in balance and uh, that's how it is. Okay, let us take one more question. Let us not end with cockroaches. <laughs> um, Shambhavi says, use red hit. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, red hit is a spray thing, right? Anti, anti bug spray kills cockroaches. Yeah, sure. Not a good, not, not a bad idea. Does gravity work in a different way for microorganisms like viruses? So as far as we know, uh, gravity has been tested on small scales, and it seems to work just the way it works 
at large scales up to a certain limit. Uh, gravity, we know it breaks down. The way we understand gravity, that breaks down at the quantum scale. The quantum scale is the hypermicroscopic scale, the, the subatomic and subatomic scale. At the scale of things like viruses, I suppose gravity could still work the way it works. I'm sure other forces would, would overwhelm the force of gravity. Maybe electro the electrostatic force and other forces would, would kind of overwhelm the gravitational attraction that viruses, viruses would typically face. But I think that even at the scale of viruses, gravity as we understand it would still work the same. It's only at the quantum scale that gravity no longer makes sense and we don't know how it works. All right. Anything else? Why did Leonardo da Vinci sleep only two, three hours? I'm not sure if he did. I think it would be incredible if somebody would be able to do that. I don't think it's healthy. I don't know if it's the truth. Uh, there is a certain uh, category of people, a very rare kind of person. Um, they are called... Uh, what are they called? Super sleepers or, or something like that. There are some people, a very small percentage of human beings who can do very well by with, with very less sleep. So some world leaders have, have had this characteristic. Uh, I hear that Margaret Thatcher, the former prime, prime minister of the UK, was able to perform very well on four hours of sleep. She would sleep just four hours and then wake up and go back to work. And uh, I hear that even our prime minister, Mr. Modi, is able to function very well on, on four hours or so of sleep. Some people have this thing. They're called elite sleepers. So if the story, if what you're saying about Mr. Da Vinci is true, then maybe he was an elite sleeper. Well, uh, so some people have that. Maybe it's a genetic thing, but most people need at least seven to eight hours of sleep. That's just how it is on average. Okay, my dear friends, this brings us to the end of today's session. As always, very interesting questions. Keep the questions coming and I will see you in the next episode, which is tomorrow. And tomorrow we will discuss other topics, geopolitics, history, and current affairs. Thank you very much for all the questions. Always great fun interacting with you all. And I will see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye.